according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are still in Philippians chapter 1, and uh, getting down towards verse 11, which will finish uh, the first of these sections here in chapter 1. Verse 7 says, It is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And what I've been trying to stress in the seventh verse is not the emotions, but the intellect. Uh, We don't get to the emotions until verse 8. And unfortunately, I think because of that, then the uh, translation gets affected in verse 7. And maybe it's just me, or maybe it's just um, uh, maybe a hypersensitivity to how things are used. Uh, But that word feel in verse 7 bugs me to death, all right? Because it's not a feeling verb, it's a thinking verb. And uh, it's the first of 10 times that, uh, that the term is used in Philippians, and nowhere else would we want to translate it feel, uh, except here. Everywhere else it's thinking. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. The thinking of Christ Jesus that we're supposed to have in chapter 2. And like I say, 10 times through the, verse, uh, through the book of Philippians. And likewise, putting somebody in your heart, all right? Thy word I have hid in my heart. The heart is not an emotional uh, thing in the Scriptures. The cardia centers on our being. It centers on our thinking. It it centers on how the Word of God shapes our thinking, shapes our being to the core of who we are. And so I like to use the term core, that innermost being, that center part, that dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. That's where the Word of God pierces to, is to our cardia, to our core. It's a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Okay, So we don't really get to the emotional terms until verse 8. God is my witness how I long for you all. Now there we have emotions. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that's what we're studying here this morning is affection. The affection of Christ Jesus. All right, before we do begin though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Asking God the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble our thinking under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness and calling upon your faithfulness. Father, we trust that uh, the Holy Spirit will be active this morning to open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us, to lead us. We uh, trust, Father, that uh, the uh, truth of your word will not be diminished in any way or impacted uh, just because uh, the pastor has a bit of a sore throat and a cough. Father, uh, you are the teacher, you are the faithful one. So overcome everything human this morning, and uh, minister your truth to your children. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, as we talk about this, we come to main point nine, and I'll get our slideshow up to uh, where it needs to be here. And slide uh, 17 for main point nine. Paul's uh, thinking is righteous thinking. It is grounded in grace so that his feelings reflect the affection of Christ. That's the order. Thinking comes first in verse 7, and then the feelings follow in verse 8. His thinking is righteous thinking grounded in grace. 
And these are the expressions we have here in verse 7. It is only right for me to think this way about you all. The term is righteous or just. It's according to the standard of God Himself. That our thinking either lines up with God's thinking or it doesn't. And, and it doesn't matter if we have all these human standards of righteousness or these, all these spectrums or, or uh, realms that we think are right. God has the absolute standard of right and wrong. And we conform to His thinking for righteous thinking or we depart from God's standard. And no matter how good we want to call it, it's human goodness and a fall short of God's righteous standard. And that, uh, of that we can uh, have no question. So it is righteous thinking. And again, it's grounded in grace. He says, uh, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers, fellowship partakers of grace with me. And so we see how it's uh, uh, righteous thinking grounded in grace. And uh, under this, we had some subpoints. I'm going to get through some of these, sound judgment, righteous thinking, putting somebody in your heart. We spent some time talking about that because we know Psalm 119 talks about hiding the word in your heart. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so I can appreciate that. And what does it take? Um, how much time in the word of God does it take to put it in your heart, right? I mean, I know how long, what does it take to memorize it? What does it take to think it through and to again and again with repetition to, to get it in your thinking? But is it, is, does it take at least that long? And what's the process like to put it into the core of who you are, to implant it within your heart? And uh, so then take that as a concept with respect to doctrine, the, the, the scriptures, right? Hiding in your heart. And what about circumstances? What about people? How can I put a person in my heart? And how long does that take? Does that just happen on a dime? Does that just happen overnight? Or does it take the, the uh, fellowship of the saints? Does it take the struggles in the angelic conflict? Does it take, I think what it talks about here, in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel? You know, there are brothers and sisters that you go through, uh, you go through the fire together. It's like a combat veteran and you're, you're in the foxhole. You know, that'll, that'll put two people together in a hurry in the, the camaraderie and the esprit de corps of, of combat, see. And I think that too we can, we can consider as a context in this, in this passage for putting somebody in your heart in, uh, in that application there. So whether it's the Word of God or fellow believers or ministry experiences, the ministry experiences that are placed within your heart. Mary treasured these things in her heart, the Scripture says in Luke one sixty six or Luke 2. All right, to take ministry experiences and have those as treasures, the, uh, the storehouse, the thesaurus in your heart, I think is uh, a significant uh, blessing. All right, so from there, we then start dealing with the emotions, and this is subpoint D. Because of Paul's righteous thinking, he developed an affectionate longing for the Philippian saints, and that's the reality of it here. Uh, I long for you. That panting as the deer pants for the water brook, the longing for a believer, someone that you have not seen, but you would dearly love to see them again. And the next opportunity you have, you're going to treasure it because it may be the, the last opportunity you have. You don't know. And so the, the longing for a person is, is clearly an emotional uh, aspect. So we talked about epipatheo and the intensive verb there, like longing for the pure milk of the word and aspects of that. And so here's where we've left off Wednesday. I want to get right back to it. We've covered half of this, um, the, the, the noun and the verb and the, and the aspects here. It's tough for us 
because it doesn't really come across. This is an aspect of language where sometimes you wonder, why is it like that? Why are kidneys, why are uh, spleens, why are the entrails considered the seat of the emotions? Okay, well, that's a why question. We can't always answer a why question. It's just, that's the way that it is, all right? That's the way that it was. It was true in Hebrew, it's true in Greek, uh, possibly uh, other languages uh, in the ancient world that viewed that the the uh, the the guts of the matter <laughs> that your entrails is uh, is an emotional thing. All right, maybe uh, because you know we get that if you're going through an emotional experience in your life, then maybe you know you've got an upset stomach or you've got bathroom issues or things, and it, it's probably natural to assume that if something's not right, that you're gonna you're gonna heave. Okay. Um, in any event, almost none of that idiom comes across except. We do have the adjective visceral. We talk about a visceral reaction to something. And there are some things that you just respond to in a visceral way. And that adjective visceral is, is maybe the, the only aspect in modern English that still conveys the, uh, the viscera, the entrails of, of a person that could be you know, ripped out in, in violent fashion. Um, and so that's what we have here. Anyway, in, in Greek we have the splanknon, which speaks of the intestines when Judas Iscariot hangs himself and, and he falls asunder and his, his intestines burst asunder there in Acts one eighteen. That's the term. That's the Greek word splanknon. And it's the only time in the New Testament that splanknon is used literally, that it's used of the internal organs or the intestines. Every other use of splanknon refers in a metaphoric way to the emotions, to the compassion. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. It comes from a verb, splanknizomai, uh, number 4697. That's the verb that, uh, that speaks of feeling uh, compassion or being moved, right? Being moved. And, and I, I like that as an idiom, as a concept, uh, being moved. Jesus was moved with compassion, uh, it's not necessarily wrong to be moved with compassion, but <clears throat> again, you want all of those emotional movements to be um, controlled by biblical thinking, by your, the, the Word of God shaping how you think, see? Otherwise, then the movement just carries you along and you're carried away and it's, it's all out of control. All right, so um, on Wednesday, if you were with us, we went through the second part I kind of took it out of order, and so we dropped down to look at these verses down here. Uh, most of them were centered on Jesus. Most of them were His applications, and feeding the 5,000 or feeding the 4,000 or other people that He observed were sheep without a shepherd. And it hurt. It absolutely hurt Him to see Jewish people without solid teaching. And He saw Jewish people uh, that weren't anchored in doctrine, and it moved Him. And so he would do a number of things. He would heal the sick, he would feed them, he would do other things. And most of all, though, he was teaching them. And that's the, the, uh, the emphasis there. So uh, I don't want to repeat any of that, uh, the use of the verb, but I do want to back up now and start to take a look at the noun, splanknon, and the 11 times that it is used in the New Testament. Uh, and so we'll start with Second Corinthians 6, and, and we'll see the two uses here. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 7, and uh, the noun uh, as it refers to the emotions or the compassion that, uh, that we can feel. All right, so 2 Corinthians 6.12 and 7.15 are the uses here. 
Interesting that we have them in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, or the Pauline uses in Philemon. I believe all in the same era of Paul's third missionary journey, all within, by, by placing the uh, prison epistles where we do in that third missionary journey in an Ephesus setting, it really helps to link uh, Philippians together with uh, 2 Corinthians in ways that you wouldn't otherwise if you insist on the Roman imprisonment view. But uh, in any event, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what agreement, or uh, verse 12 is what we're headed for. Um, verse 11 says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own splankna, plural of splankna. You are restrained by your own affections. And so right here in the very first use, we realize this is not a good thing. Okay, this is a problem that there is a restraint. There is there are constraints upon what they're doing and why they're doing it and what they're thinking is and and the process there. And that's what happens when you instead of having your intellect in the driver's seat and the and the emotions in the passenger seat, you swap it around and you put the emotions in the driver's seat. And now it's in charge. And now you find that certain things are constrained. Okay, and. Uh, it affects how you think, it affects what you do, and you get caught up in things. So then he goes on to say, now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. And there's a, the, the context of this whole chapter is interesting as Paul uses his own example here and his own, um, to, to illustrate where they should be as imitators. Um, but this is, the, this is the backdrop then for what follows with do not be unequally yoked, do not be bound together. And I don't think that's accidental. How many people get bound together, they get unequally yoked, and it's not because they were thinking biblically, okay? It's because they were constrained by their own emotions, constrained by their own uh, splanknon. And so uh, in that, in that uh, dead-end street, uh, what do you expect? Yeah, they're just going to go with what feels right, and, and uh, there they deal with it. And so uh, to be bound together with unbelievers, and they end up making horrible relationship choices, marital choices, and uh, they, they face lifelong consequences as a result. So that's the, uh, the use there. Next chapter over, we have uh, a positive example. Uh, you, you might recall that much of the, the early chapters of Second Corinthians was written in dread, that Paul was convinced that he had sent Titus to his doom, and, uh, and that uh, he was writing a letter to possibly... Uh, a church that had that had murdered Titus, all right? Uh, that the recipient, that uh, T- uh, Timothy had a reason for being nervous, didn't want to go, and, and maybe it was a, a dangerous thing to take a, uh, an unhappy letter to the Corinthians. And But finally then, he, uh, he gets reunited with Titus, and, and that's all a good thing. And um, so in verse 13, uh, we've been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more, uh, more much more, for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And so we can see the context for this that centers on emotion. For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more toward you. We'll have some abounding studies coming up because his prayer for them, for the Philippians, is that their love would abound. And we'll have that here in another verse. But here's, Timothy, or here's Titus, whose splanknon, 
whose affection abounds all the more towards the Corinthians. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And uh, uh, you can imagine, uh, maybe Titus himself has some fear and trembling, how they were going to receive him and how they were going to receive the the sorrowful letter that Paul wrote. And yet uh, they responded with humility. They responded and it was a, a very tender time. So I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. And those, uh, those are the uses there, all right? Um, likewise, in Philippians 1.8, that's our verse this morning that started this, the affection of Christ, the splanchnon of Christ. It gets used a second time in Philippians in chapter 2. It comes up again here with this affection, if there is any, and yes, of course, there is. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, okay? The paraclesis, the comfort or the encouragement that we have in Christ. If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, okay? Splanchnon is the first of those two terms, and you see how it's linked emotionally there with compassion. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind that's thinking maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay? So we'll deal with that as we get to that point. Um, Now, these other uses, the New American Standard Bible, for some reason, decided, instead of rendering it affection, they decided to translate it heart. Okay? Because, uh, I can't explain it, don't ask me why. Um, They didn't consult me. Okay, 1974, they wouldn't have consulted me. But the New American Standard translators, um, to me, I think they introduce unnecessary confusion. If, if you're going to use heart consistently, repeatedly for cardia, well then don't use heart for something else besides cardia, right? Don't use heart for splanchnon uh, when you've got a perfectly good alternative like compassion uh, or, or something else that you might use to reflect the uh, the emotions of it. But Nevertheless, uh, we have these verses in Colossians, Philemon, and 1 John. So let's see these. And just, just remember, as you look at these, and it might be useful uh, when you have heart words that are not cardia to you know, put a check mark there or mark it somehow to, to remind yourself that it's not cardia. It's not the core of your thinking. It's the emotions, okay? And uh, that's what we have here in Colossians 3.12. Um, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on intestines of compassion. You don't like that? All right, fine. Put on a heart of compassion. And just remind yourself, though, it's not cardia. It's splanchnon, okay? Remind yourself there that it's, it is an emotional aspect. It's not your cardia. It's the splanchnon. Those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on splanchnon of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. All right? And uh, so there's a beautiful emotional passage that you can teach emotionally, okay? And uh, you'll recognize, though, that it comes as a follow-up to the thinking imperative of um, keep seeking the things above in verse 1 and consider in verse 5, all right? And so uh, 
we get basically we get 11 verses of doctrine with considerations and and mental focus with an emotional application in verses 12 and following. Uh, Philemon. Philemon. Whoever heard of Philemon? Well, get past Titus and uh, before Hebrews. Tucked in between there is Philemon. And a tiny little book. 25 verses, one chapter. And uh, three Splanknon occurrences. Interesting. All right? Um, he's thankful here. Uh, it's, most, it's common in Paul's writing to greet somebody with grace and peace and then uh, offer up a thanksgiving, which he does here. Verse 4, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective, may become working. Man, I can preach that for an hour. The, the, the achievement of your fellowship. Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you, for Christ's sake. Through the full knowledge, through the epinosis. <coughs> But then in verse 7, Paul says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the intestines, uh, the splanknaw of the saints, have been refreshed through you, brother. Okay? That uh, whatever Philemon's gift was, he wasn't the pastor of the church. I think if the church was in his house, he and his wife were likely the the hosts, uh, possibly their son, maybe Aristarch, uh, maybe uh, their son was the pastor there. They lived in Colossae, all right? Um, but whatever their gift was, hospitality, mercy showing, what have you, encouraging, um, he was uh, a sort that would refresh the emotions. Ref- the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. That is the intestines, the emotional heart. So maybe if you insist on using the word heart, uh, just hyphenate it. Have the cardia intellectual heart and then have the splankna emotional heart. And uh, you can rightly divide the word of truth on that basis. Verse 12, uh, further down, uh, he says, when he finally gets around to his, his request here, in verse 10 he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. The runaway slave who stole from his master, who fled from Colossae. Okay? According to the traditional view, he ran all the way to Rome somehow. In, uh, in, I think, the better view, he escaped from Colossae to Ephesus. And that Ephesus is the imprisonment where he uh, encountered the Apostle Paul. But either way, my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful. And that's a play on words because the name Onesimus means useful. Uh, but how useful is a runaway slave that stole from you and and was gone, but now he's useful, both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very splanknon, sending my very compassion, sending my very emotion, sending my intestines, sending my heart. Okay? That's the emotional heart, not the intellectual cardia heart. Whom I wish to keep with me, so that on, see, the, the idea of longing and proximity, somebody that you long for, you want to be close to. So that uh, on your behalf, he might minister to me in the imprisonment, in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, this is so key, and uh, 
What am I headed for next? Verse 20? All right. So yes, it's not a, not a splank non-verse, but verse 14 is important. Without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. If you ever do studies on free will and do studies on compulsion and do studies on goodness, God the Father is not pleased with compulsion. Our giving has to be not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. If it's under compulsion, God doesn't want it. And that's true for the the money you put in the grace box. That's true for the time you spend in the nursery changing diapers or the time you spend in the Sunday school teaching the the beautiful children of this church. Um, Anything you do, even even, uh, pounding nails and dumping trash buckets or whatever you're doing, it can't be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. And in this text, compulsion, I think, is defined in a beautiful way. Even, even if it's just effective compulsion, even if it's just de facto compulsion, which he talks about here, without your consent. You notice that? God expects fully informed consent. And if something is done in your ignorance, if something is done that you were just not aware of and you were just oblivious to something, Paul says that's not good. That, that then becomes compulsion effectively. And effective compulsion is, doesn't glorify Jesus Christ. So without your awareness and without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion. And that's, that's a huge doctrine right there in this little book that no one ever heard of called Philemon. Okay? But it defines much of what we understand in the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, and why God designed it the way that He did, and what God expects of us in our goodness, His goodness. All right. The, the, um, anyway, so he's, he's urging Philemon then to make doctrinal application of his own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. There's something to consider. Maybe the separation was only a short time thing so you could have him back long term. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. Now you get him back, you got, a, you got your slave back, but now you got a believer in Jesus Christ. A beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. All right. Verse 17, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Isn't that beautiful? That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement right there. That's Jesus Christ speaking to the Father and saying, hey, this sinner, don't accept him as a sinner, accept him as me. My righteousness imputed to his account. And God doesn't see me anymore as the sinner, he sees his son and that righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And the imputation of my sins to Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. All right. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. He didn't write many letters with his own hand, but this one he is. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe me even your own self as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not to mention. Anytime somebody says not to mention, they're about to mention something, okay? And, and they've got a reason for doing that. Okay, like when they say no offense, they're, they're about to offend you. Okay, but they, but when they introduce it with no offense, all right, well then shut up. Not to mention, and this is just a little clue that when Philemon got saved, Paul's the one that led him to Christ. 
Okay? Even though Paul had never been to Colossae, but wherever they were, finally men came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of the Apostle Paul. Anyway, then we get to verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my splanknon in Christ. Refresh my heart, my intestines in Christ. Okay? And so we realize emotions are a central part of who we are. And yes, we, uh, we, we study, we, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that, that our service to Him is an intellectual service and doctrine as our thinking is renewed. But then once that's done, now we are equipped to be able to have the emotions blessed as well, to be blessed, to be refreshed, to be benefited, to be encouraged. Clearly, we want to have all of those needs provided for biblically as well. God's designed for it all. So refresh my heart in Christ. Uh, 1 John 3.17 Again, it's translated heart. If you say you uh, love your brother, or you see your brother in distress, and then you close your intestines against your brother, you close your heart against your brother, that's what love is that right? 1 John 3 and verse 17. So we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his splanknon against him, it's not closing the cardia, but it's closing the splanknon (coughs) against him. How does the love of God abide in him? What kind of mental attitude gymnastics do you have to do to rationalize that? To just close your heart. Biblical Christianity won't close your heart that way. All right? The, the, the transformation of the Word of God of your thinking will not close your, your splanknon that way. All right. So that's the use there. Finally, uh, maybe the only thing we haven't seen yet is the t- tender mercy translation. Or did we see that already in Luke 178? I don't recall if we looked at that one or not. Luke 1, 78. It's the last use of Splanknon of the 11 here. And we can say we've seen them all. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. This was the uh, song of Zechariah when he got his mouth opened again and had a chance to uh, prophesy and to announce the birth of John the Baptist. His son would be the forerunner of the Christ, the herald. Uh, Verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, This is before Pentecost. This is Old Testament in its context. This is with a Jewish background. Anyone that tries to tell you that Jews in the Old Testament got saved any differently than how we got saved, not so. The forgiveness of their sins has always been by faith in the coming Messiah. Our salvation is the forgiveness of our sins and by faith in the Messiah who came. We look back, they look forward. But it's still faith in Christ, either way. So uh, because of the tender mercy of our God, because of the splanknon of our God, you know what? God's got splanknon. Isn't that great? Okay? And we get that. We get the fact that, okay, so it's an anthropopathism, it's an expression. It's like the hand of God, the eye of God, the heart of God, the splanknon of God. We get that. 
That's an expression that's used to communicate a reality. God is spirit. He's not embodied until the word becomes flesh. But so God is spirit, but still these terms are used to convey the reality that God is a mental God. He's an emotional God. He's a personal God. And that to us should be, should be huge. See, that God is a compassionate God. And that, yes, God so loved the world, John 3, 16, but that's, that's not the emotions. This, this here is the emotions, okay? And um, if, if uh, you ever hear a, a horrible sermon that turns John 3, 16 into an emotional, uh, you know, tear fest kind of a thing, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that's not an emotional passage. This is, okay? So maybe that one gets mistaught, but this one needs to be taught because of the tender mercy of our God, because of the splanknon of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. All right, so this is the motivation behind the first advent of Jesus Christ. Why it is that he comes in humility. Why it is that he's born of a virgin. Why it is that he grows and he learns all the sufferings that we deal with. And why uh, all of that had to come as a first advent before he can return second advent in, uh, in victory. Okay. All right. Was 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 the virgin birth necessary? Could could God not have just grabbed some dust like He did with Adam and shaped an adult male body, and and breathe into the nostrils there and have God the Son just appear on the earth and hop on a white horse and start conquering everything? Okay. The purpose for the birth and the purpose for that humility and to express that and to live that out in an entire earthly walk. That's a, that's a glorious thing. And, and we're going to, that's, that's center stage in the book of Hebrews. Okay. How he identifies with us, how he was uh, humbled and all that, and how he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And what a joy that we have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf and identifies. Uh, he still today continues to identify with what we're uh, dealing with. All right. Now we're ready then for verses nine through 11. So there's a place for emotions. We're happy to have emotions. God has emotions. But we want our emotions to not be in the driver's seat. We want uh, passenger seat is fine. Even up front is fine. Don't even have to put them to the back seat. Uh, But just not in the driver's seat. Okay? Keep, uh, Keep emotions where they need to be. Now, point 10. Paul followed his Thanksgiving offering with an intercession for the Philippians' ongoing ministry. This is fairly common, not in every case, but in many of Paul's epistles, he starts with a thanksgiving prayer and then it morphs into an ongoing uh, petition, a request moving forward. So thankful for what has happened and now looking forward and with a petition. And he has a, uh, really, he has a principal prayer petition that he makes uh, after having already expressed the, uh, the primary prayer practices of uh, remembrance and thanksgiving. And uh, so here we see it in verses 9 through 11. He says, And this I pray, that your love, your agape, may abound still more and more. All right, so is this, are we still in the emotional mode from verse 8? Uh, no, wait a minute. It's epinosis and discernment. Full knowledge and discernment. So after that emotional verse in verse 8, he takes it right back to abounding love and it's still shaped by the Word of God. It's still thinking um, that your agape may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent 
in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, so verses 9 through 11. It's an outline for the Christian way of life. It's a, it's a thumbnail sketch, right? You have thumbnails in your picture directories, right? Thumbnails, and you can look at the thumbnails and, and figure out which, which photo you want to attach to the email because you're looking at, at thumbnails. Here's a thumbnail. These verses form a thumbnail for the Christian way of life, for what it means to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's for agape to abound. Let me read these again. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Is there ever time to stop? Have you ever learned enough? Are you, are you ready for heaven now? You've learned enough, you've got enough doctrine. You've more and more and more and more and more and more. Just don't stop. Today's a day to grow more and more. Agape should abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And so, uh, again, we'll have to remind ourselves the difference between gnosis and epinosis, knowledge and full knowledge. This is full knowledge, okay? This is epinosis here. And all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. You and I need to learn how to become discriminatory. We have to discriminate, and love will help us discriminate, okay? And, and we've got to overcome our culture because we get beat up with sticks all the time about discrimination this, discrimination that, discrimination the other thing. All right? There's legitimate discrimination. And love helps us discriminate. In fact, I think it's the only way to discriminate. That, uh, it's the, that agape is the discrimination standard. Uh, with real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent. We want to reject the, the heresies. We want to embrace the truth of the Word of God in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And I think too many Christians that are compromising with sin, that are accepting sin and calling it something else, calling it not sin, all right, and they're compromising on the Word of God, they've rejected this whole concept. They're not, disc- they're not discriminating appropriately. They're not approving the things that are excellent, and they're, they're giving their sanction and approval on things that are not excellent, on things that the Bible calls abominations. And that's not love. And it just, it irks me. I've got family members that have plunged into this thinking. And it's just, uh, it's heartbreaking. And uh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And so if you compromise with wickedness and call that love, check again. Get the, get the, the, the 1 Corinthians 13 definition of agape and, and explain this to me. All right so that you can uh, approve the things that are uh, excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Notice, not perfect, not sinless, not better than thou, holy, you know, legalists, all right? Sinners saved by grace like everyone else, but sincere and blameless by this definition with abounding love more and more having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Whatever happens to that fruit, right? If, if, if we're bearing fruit, if the fruit of the Spirit and we're bearing all this fruit, who eats all this fruit that we're bearing? We do. We should eat so much of it that we're full. All right, so that's the thumbnail sketch. 
for the, for the Christian way of life. What's the, the principal prayer petition? It is for agape love to abound more and more. We want agape love to abound more and more. And whatever, wherever I think I am on the agape scale, I, none of us ought to be content with that. Wherever we think we are. Okay? However you measure love. Okay? However it's measured in, in quantity. Do we use cubits for that? I don't know. Do we use, uh, what do we use for that? Um, whatever level, whatever mark that is, it's not enough. Okay? There's more to grow in. There's more to abound in. That you, we can't exhaust the depths of it because it's infinite. And so we should abound more and more. And the, the, the worst thing about it is, is the, uh, the, the complacency, the tendency to think, well, that's enough. Okay? Because had God had that same attitude, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. If, if that was God's attitude of agape, he'd have been content with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in uh, con, uh, content in their own fellowship. But God so loved agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. We want to abound more and more. And that's going to be stressed here as well. Um, parasuo is our verb to abound or to have an abundance. It's, uh, it speaks of, of uh, what we ought to relate to very well. Americans ought to be the best at abounding, okay? Because we eat more, we drink more, we play more, we make more. We, uh, as a culture, we are utterly decadent. There's no question, okay? We understand more. We understand better. There's not a country on this planet where you go into a grocery store and there's more flavors of chocolate, more flavors of... I mean, yeah, they've got chocolate, a brand or two here or there, um, we've got aisles and aisles, stores and stores, variety, abundance. And that's, uh, that's what we want to have for our agape love. Not to grow complacent, not to grow content. It should abound more and more. The, uh, and we'll talk about how this happens here in full knowledge and discernment. But uh, it's common for Paul to encourage people, people that aren't doing well to do better, people that are doing well to do even more better. <laughs> okay. You can, you can preach the abounding sermon to anybody. Uh, someone who's not abounding, you can preach at them and say, start abounding. And somebody who is abounding, you can preach at them and say, abound more and more. Okay? The Philippians are a great example because they're doing everything well. I, I can't find, at least yet, I haven't found any uh, negative thing to say about the Philippians. Okay? But they can abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. You might recall in the Corinthians illustration, now they were not doing well. Um, but to abound in love more and more. Let's see, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 and 8. <coughs> um, well, now this comes after the reunion with Titus, and this comes after he's learned that um, that Corinth has repented and that Corinth is responding positively because he would not have written this chapter before Titus arrived. This would not have been what he would have said in chapter 1. But now that Titus has come, now that he understands that they're on track, now that he understands that they abound, abound, are abounding in everything, it's the, the blessing that he has to invite them to join in the, the Philippian uh, giving. Okay? This is what happens here at the start of chapter 8. He's informing them of the Philippian giving. 
Uh, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, right? Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those Macedonian churches. And now Corinth is going to be invited to abound with them for their love to abound. Wow. Um, don't want to read the whole chapter just to get to verses 7 and 8, but anyway, the... the um, Verse 2 says, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance, and that's a cognate adjective here, a noun from Parasuo, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That's the example. And, and these are the people that he wants for their love to abound more and more. Okay? His prayer was that their love would abound more and more. And now it turns out that it is because now they're, uh, they're doing this. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, volitional giving, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. They, they, they view it as their pleasure. It's their privilege. Wow, I get to do this. Not I have to do this, but I get to do this. And the excitement of that. And, and really, um, I tell you, believers with the gift of giving, this is their love. And, and they get, they, they're offended. They're hurt if they learn of something after the fact. And when it's too late, and they, they, they're crushed. Oh, I wish I would have known. That would have been a blessing to partake in a, in a ministry like that. I wish I would have known. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And uh, this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So they're given to the Lord, they're given to Paul, and now they're putting together a monster offering to go to the saints in Jerusalem. So you think Paul's prayer was answered that their agape would abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment? Absolutely. Okay. So again, I, I take Philippians written prior to this, that this is now a, a follow-up to what, uh, what we're studying this morning. All right, verse 6 then. So we urge Titus, as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So again, when the reunion happened with Titus, he realized that Corinth was repentant, that Corinth was ready to get on board, that Corinth was ready to bear fruit, and that it had started, all right, well, build on that good start. So verse 7 then, just as you perisio, just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So there's a whole lot of abounding that happens there in verse 7, right? And um, I think it's, it's useful to see the concepts and ask yourself in all your abounding, don't confuse busyness with service. Don't confuse abounding with the reality of, of what really needs to abound, okay? And yes, there is a gracious work that needs to be done, but are we abounding in faith? Are we abounding in utterance? Are we abounding in knowledge? Are we abounding in earnestness? Are we abounding in agape love? See, once those aspects are abounding, if your Christian walk is on track, then yeah, certainly get busy. Do stuff, okay? But just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff and not having the, the right attitude. Not with abounding love, abounding faith, abounding knowledge. I don't think it's, wor- uh, it's not worth it. It's wood, hay, and stubble. How could it be gold, silver, and precious stones if it's not abounding in faith? You're just, you're just doing something out of duty, doing something out of works, doing something out of... If it's not a faith, it's sin. 
All right, so I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your agape also. The sincerity of your love also, okay? Agape love. Love offerings. It's not emotional. It's not a tenderness. It's not a longing affection for Paul. It's not a longing affection for believers in Jerusalem they never met. But it's an agape love for Jesus Christ. Because they love Jesus Christ, they're giving. They're supporting the saints. See how that works? All right. Abounding in love. First Thessalonians. Here's a great example. Another, <clears throat> another Macedonian church right up there with Philippi doing everything right. First Thessalonians 3.12, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9 and verse 10. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, again and again this parasuo shows up, again and again this concept shows up about abounding love. The um, prayer request here in uh, <coughs> chapter 3, this is not a Titus reunion, this is a Timothy reunion. Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us longing to see us just as we also long to see you. So for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. There's nothing that will encourage a pastor more than to find out that there's a believer living in doctrine. That there's a believer that hasn't seen for a while. Oh, look at that. You're still under teaching. Okay? Still under teaching and, and uh, different things there. And so it's a blessing. And uh, he talks about what thanks can we offer in return for all the joy in which we rejoice as we night and day keep praying most earnestly we may see your face may complete what is lacking in your faith so here's the prayer request verse 11 now may our god and father himself and jesus our lord direct our way to you and may the lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And do you spot that? The context is identical to what we're seeing this morning in Philippians 1. The perspective for why our, our love has to abound is so that we are equipped to stand at the Bema, so that we are equipped to stand for our end of life evaluation. As it says here, he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. We want to have abounding love engaged. We want to be engaged in that abounding love when the trumpet sounds. So that when we're caught up to be with Him in the air, we're, we're blameless. We're equipped to stand there at that judgment seat. Okay, We don't want to shrink away in shame at His appearing. First John 2 talks about that. No, if you're abounding in love, you won't shrink away in shame. When that trumpet sounds, you will be looking up and thrilled, okay? Same thing. The context here is identical to our context in uh, Philippians 1. It has the idea of being sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Here it's uh, uh, without blame and holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Same event, same context, different ways to express it. Down in chapter 4 then, um, <clears throat> he tells them, hey, you're doing great. Keep, keep it up. Do better. 
Verse 1, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, you don't do anything wrong, that you excel still more, abound still more. You're doing everything right, do more, keep it up. Don't fall for the complacency snare that says, eh, we're all right, we're okay, we're better than those Corinthians, goodness, let's, let's go ahead and relax. Okay? Because, I mean, man, as much treasure as we've laid up in heaven, we're miles ahead of those losers. So let's, uh, we, can, we can coast. No. No, not at all. Excel still more. And um, different sanctification exhortations in verses 2 through 8. Uh, so it says, uh, verse 9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Thessalonica was the last congregation on earth that needed a a doctrinal treatise on agape love or on Philadelphia love. That's what we have here. Um, For you yourselves are taught by God to agapao, to love one another. And indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Agape is never enough. Excel more. Let that agape abound. If you're doing well, do better. Okay. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life as it goes on to give the practical aspect on that. Uh, give a, lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Just a practical exhortation to work so that they have an abundance to share and a, and a, a practical way to express the agape love. Not in place of agape love but a practical expression of agape love. Finally, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. The follow-up. And they're still doing it. <clears throat> we ought always to give thanks to God for your brethren as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Okay, faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love and they got them all. This, this thus like an assembly is, uh, is amazing. Alright. Your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. You think those are connected for a reason? You think your love can abound if you're not growing in your faith? if it's not being shaped by the Word of God. Again and again and again, we, we're coming back to how does the Word of God shape our thinking. All right, how do I want love to abound? I want love to abound in flowers and chocolates and romantic walks by the river. Oh, wait a minute. Your love will abound in epinosis, in full knowledge and discernment. Again, love is not an emotion. Okay? Ooh, I'm in trouble. Agape. Agape, okay? Agape love, philos love, storgos love, eros love, all kinds of love in the Greek language and in in the scriptural revelation. Okay? And yes, there is affection. There is, but that's not agape. Okay? Agape speaks of God's character expressing itself for our benefit. Our love speaks of our character, shaped by the Word of God, being expressed for the benefit of others. 
and it's not emotional. And if it's going to abound, it's going to abound in full knowledge and discernment. So on Wednesday when we come back, we're going to talk about the, the distinction between the facts and the, the, the gnosis and the epinosis. Okay? Because we can accumulate a lot of facts, like love is not an emotion. Okay? And the problem is we then get a fact, and that can puff us up. Gnosis puffs up, but love edifies. And uh, there's a reason why we don't want to be limited to the gnosis. There's a reason why we want in love to abound in the epinosis, in the full recognition of, of what the Word of God is saying, what it means, what the impact is in my application in my life. And so, like I say, on Wednesday we're going to be dealing with this. It's not the knowledge which puffs up. It's not the gnosis. It's the epinosis. And it is the discernment. It's the love that sees what it sees. And here's, here's the real benefit. If you want to just chew on this for three days, okay? I'll tease you and you can come back for the cliffhanger on Wednesday. But think about this. If, if emotional love can, can cloud our thinking and, and can color you know, how we make decisions and, and, and what we choose to do and so forth, can God's love do the same thing? Agape, can agape do the same thing? It can. Think about it. Love is patient. Okay? I might not be, but love is. Okay? Love is kind. I might not be, but love is. All right? Love believes all things. I may not. I may struggle to accept certain things. Love doesn't. Love believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. And so if, my, if I'm letting the love of God abound, can that love... Can that love affect how I think, how I view things? My, if I'm wearing love, think of it as a pair of glasses. Take off this set, put on a different set. Okay? And now I want to look at things. I want to look at my testing through the lens of God's agape love. I want to look at other people through the lens of God's agape love. It makes a big difference rather than just looking with human viewpoint. I think it's the key is, is divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint and that the, the main thing in divine viewpoint is agape love because God is love. Anyway, chew on that. I'll, do, I'll chew on it too. And we'll see if, uh, if, if it bears up in, in the expansion on this as we spell it out for you. The, um, because it's, it's, it's love and it's perception. It shapes how we perceive things. And so in real knowledge and all discernment, Okay, all discernment. Discernment means we were able to rightly divide. We can we can categorize, we can put into right and wrong, good and bad, pleasing and unpleasing. We have righteous discernment through the love of God. And so we'll talk about the faculty of mind for perceiving the senses that uh, we're expected to have. So that's Wednesday, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your truth. I pray that you would open our eyes to this truth. I pray that we would understand what it means for love to abound, that we can make the appropriate agape applications you call us to make. And that means laying down our life for one another. That means the sacrificial giving for the other's benefit. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, the attitude of love which you had for the world, which Christ had for the church, which we're commanded to have for one another and even our enemies, I pray, Father, that we would um, understand it for what it is and not confuse it 
Not confuse it for the world's definition. Not confuse it for emotions. Not confuse it for romance. Not confuse it for sex. Not confuse it for all these other twisted things that uh, the world confuses it for. So be at work, Father, and open our eyes. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.